Today. Did you just ask me for a date? Well, er, uh, that is, yeah. I mean, yes, I did, Batgirl. But, I mean, I can understand if you said no. I mean, you're a busy person, and me, well, I'm just a soldier, and you... Hmm, how weird. As Babs Gordon, I've been asked out by all sorts of men, from senators to foreign dignitaries to Dick Grayson. But this is the first time anyone has ever asked for a date with Batgirl. Who knows? It could be a lot of fun. Because a girl, I, I mean a woman, like you... Okay, Sergeant, you're on. Huh? Did, did you say yes? Uh, you mean, you will? I will. You will? Wow. Uh, wow, that's great. Where should I pick you up? Um... Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure, the Dun and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, hosted by Professor Zoom Yukonori. Today's episode, The Date Night Strikes. Greetings and welcome to the 8th episode of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, a celebration of comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story within a single issue. A proud and not quite worthy member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Professor Zoom Yukinori, and I am so delighted to be here. In fact, I'm as excited as a teenager about to go on his first date with a beautiful girl. And speaking of a first date with a beautiful girl, Lenos? Greetings and salutations. I am Lenos, the logarithmic attendant that maintains etiquette and order. How may I serve you today? Nice of you to serve as chaperone, Lenos, but you were supposed to be the chauffeur. Did you not, uh, pick up our guest for our podcast date this evening? I had already transported our guest to the waiting room 6.4 minutes ago. I believe she had mentioned a plan to freshen up before making an appearance. Everyone seems to be making an appearance this evening. Terraman's all gussied up to the nines, and I see that Solomon Grundy is wearing his... Grundy best. Need I remind you, gentlemen, that this is an audio medium? Is that why you're wearing just your wife's bathrobe with bunny slippers? Mr. Manning, I am not wearing... Maybe not, but now all the listeners have that picture in their heads. (laughs) As if I wasn't nervous enough. Lenos, can you show our guest into the studio, please? Unable to comply, the guest had exited through the living room window 5.8 minutes ago. Wait, she did what? Say, Professor, I don't believe you mentioned exactly who our special guest was going to be tonight. 
I believe Entity Terraman would refer to this as your Q, Entity Zoom Yukonori. Oh, I see. I think. <clears throat> our special guest in our episode today is none other than that Domino Daredal. Batgirl. Okay, now that's an entrance. But did you really have to... Good gravy! Three sinister supervillains are harassing a defenseless old man in a wheelchair. Defenseless old... Have no fear, daisy bathrobe and bunny slipper clad citizen. I am not wearing a day... If you want to get to him, you'll have to go through me. Now hold on there, little missy. We're not... <coughs> Pretty pointy-eared girl, leave cowboy man alone. I've taken down bigger lowlifes than you, pond scum boy. I suggest you leave this kind gentleman alone. Yeah, now just a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Grundy gotcha, cowboy man. <sighs> Thanks, Grundy. Huh, I didn't expect some cordiality among... These auto not take care of you. Ah! Pizarro, see perfectly. Watch out, you square brain varmint. <laughs> oh, oh. Thanks for the workout, boys. <sighs> well, when you suggested a little rough and tumble, this was not what I had in mind. A little rough and... This was all just for show? For your show? It was Terra Man's idea. Ah, that explains why he put in the skylight earlier this week. I just wanted to add a little whoop-de-doo to start off this here episode, you know? Though I thought we'd just drop in them pow-biff-sock sound effects from that thar show DVD, and not actually. I do hope this was not a case of retaliation for any inappropriate behavior on Mr. Manning's part, Batgirl. You presume too much, Professor. Tobias here was actually a perfect gentleman, albeit a gentleman that is so last century. And he can take a hit, can't you, tough guy? Aw, shucks, missy. Ah, uh, yes. Well, welcome to our studio and to our humble program, Batgirl. Please, take a seat and let's get started. Thank you, kind sir. And hello to everyone out there in podcast listening land. Did I get that right? It was perfect. Now, before we dive into our coverage of today's Done in One Wonder comic book story, there may be some listeners out there that are not fully familiar with the pre-crisis Earth-1 Batgirl featured on this episode. So let's begin with a brief recap of who Ms. Barbara Gordon is and how she came to be. Lenos? Ah. I can see why you might mistake me for former Congresswoman Barbara Gordon, but I can assure you, I'm not. Commencing the abridged recapitulation of the Batgirl entry from Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe, Volume 2, Page 9. A PhD graduate of Gotham State University, Barbara Gordon began her career as a quiet librarian, which left her time to pursue her interest in the martial arts. One evening, on her way to the Policeman's Masquerade Ball, wearing a brand new Batgirl costume of her own design, 
She witnessed Killer Moth ambushing Bruce Wayne as part of a massive extortion plot. Impulsively rushing to Wayne's rescue, Barbara discovered she enjoyed the excitement and danger and decided to dedicate her life to the fight against crime. Her interest in protecting society led to her serving one term in Washington, D.C. as a congresswoman from Gotham City. Defeated in her re-election bid, Barbara now continues her efforts on behalf of the people as Associate Director of Humanities Research and Development. Though she has at times teamed with Batman and or Robin, Barbara is currently in semi-retirement as Batgirl, choosing instead to look after her overworked father, Gotham City Police Commissioner James W. Gordon. I don't know where you got your information, and I also don't know how you could believe that a full-time congresswoman would have been able to find any time to do any crime-fighting at all, much less the amount of crime-fighting that I do. I had often wondered about that myself, Batgirl. At any rate, this Who's Who entry mostly covers the story of your first battle with Killer Moth in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 359, followed by your win of the Congressional seat in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 424, and then your defeat in your re-election bid to candidate Della Ziegler in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 487 and 488, as well as your new vocation as the head of the Social Services Department of the Humanities Research and Development, which began in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 491. Detective... Oh, this is that Earth Prime universe Batman had told me about, where we are all just fictional comic book characters, right? Entity Zoom Yukonori is indeed from the Earth Prime universe, but this studio is... From a future time different from your year of 1981, so you will have to forgive us that we cannot say too much. Beyond this crisis you had mentioned? Uh, yes. Oops. She's sharp as a whip, that bad girl is. I do not have any record of a whip with a sharp edge in my encyclopedic database, at least not of this planet. I'll explain it to you later, lame Now shush. Well, I suppose there's no sense wasting energy denying it, given where you're from, but should Terraman and the others... Uh, it's okay. These are future versions of the villains you know. They actually work on this show full-time and cannot go back to Earth-1. Because they know a little too much, eh? Uh, something like that. Well, I appreciate you keeping them in per, uh, working here. Uh, it is the least we can do. Uh, why don't we proceed with the comic book story, shall we? The Done in One Wonder we are spotlighting today is the Batgirl story in Detective Comics, Volume 1, Issue 483. Cover dated April to May of 1979, but according to the brilliant Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, it was on sale on January 11, 1979. This was during the period when the Batman Family Anthology series format was essentially transplanted into the waning Detective Comics series in order to improve the latter book's sales. 
This particular 80-page dollar comic featured a collection of stories starring individual Batman-related characters. Obviously, this included a Batman tale, as well as a featurette known as The Public Life of Bruce Wayne. There was also a Robin Solo story. Another story featured not a Batman character, but at least a detective of sorts, Christopher Chance, the human target. And there was also a story featuring Etrigan, the demon, that loosely tied into the Batman family because it was a continuation from an earlier team-up with Man-Bat. And of course, there was the Batgirl story, our featured done-in-one wonder, which was entitled A Date with Batgirl. Writer, Bob Rosakis. Artists, Bob Oxner and Vince Coletta. Letterer, Ben Oda. Colorist, Jerry Serpe. Editor, Alan Milgram. The story opened at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., which was currently under siege by a group of terrorists that the caption box referred to as the SAE, or the Squadron for the Advancement of Everybody, a radical fringe group that believed that we were all still slaves. And by under siege, that meant that the SAE members had taken positions, some of them awkward positions, around the seated statue of Abraham Lincoln. Each SAE-er was armed with their own distinctive type of firearm, all of which were firing at the dramatic form of Batgirl, who had swooped in from the foreground on her bat rope to confront the terrorists. Yes, a military SWAT team had already surrounded the outside of the memorial, but they would not open fire because they didn't want to risk damaging the landmark. I heard about the SAE takeover on the news and arrived as Batgirl to see how I could help. Their plan was for me to distract the terrorists so the soldiers could advance and deploy tear gas to stop them. I cannot help but notice how diverse this terrorist group was. There appeared to be one Hispanic man, two Asians, one black man, and two Caucasians. The terrorist group was apparently an equal opportunity recruiter. Well, they were for the so-called advancement of everybody, were they not? though it was not quite clear what they had meant by that. I also noticed that the Caucasian terrorist who was crouched between Lincoln's feet looked very uncomfortable, and the black SAEer behind Lincoln's left foot was practically laying on his side as he was shooting at you. I do not know how they expected to shoot straight from such awkward positions. They didn't. Lucky for me. I was practically playing a target in a shooting gallery and just kept swinging in random directions within the memorial while the army unit moved into position. The SAEers didn't notice what was happening until the army started to launch their tear gas. That was when the terrorists turned their guns away from me and started firing at the advancing soldiers. I suppose they figured that if they could take enough of the army men down, they would make an opening for them to escape. Of course, that just left them open for me to attack them directly. Since I was well aware of the army's plans, I already had nose filters in place to keep out the tear gas, which gave me an advantage over the now coughing terrorists. I managed to disarm four of them with little effort, and the other two had the sense to drop their guns and surrender peacefully. Very impressive. You and the army had managed to contain the threat without any casualties. Yes, though one soldier was hit by the terrorist fire, but the army captain assured me that it was just a flesh wound and that he'd be okay. The captain also commended you for your help stating that the incident would have been, quote, a lot messier without you. True, but it was not a completely clean operation. 
As the army had rounded up the terrorists, I had noticed that one of them, the Hispanic man with the goatee wearing the orange cap and green jacket, had somehow managed to slip away. The black man among the captured terrorists had boasted that the escapee was actually the SAE group leader and hinted at plans to organize a strike at their next target. He also laid odds that I wouldn't find out what that target was until it was too late. One of the Caucasian terrorists then added to the taunt by saying the odds were 16 to 1 before the black terrorist shushed him. So the 16 to 1 odds must have been some sort of hint. And as you were pondering on that hint and watching the army lead the five terrorists away, a young male voice had requested your attention. Yes, a young army sergeant who introduced himself as Rod Stromer. He... Can I ask you something? Of course. Can you explain why this comic book artist, Oxner, was it? Yes. Can you explain why our dear Mr. Oxner, whenever he draws my figure from behind, tends to spotlight my behind? What? Oh, um... I mean, I can forgive these shots on pages one and two as my cape would naturally be flung back while I was swinging around on my bat line, but here on this panel... Panel four of page five. Right. And then here, on the very next panel, which shows me from the front, my cape is hanging down naturally from behind. And then, just skip ahead to the next page for a moment, here... The first panel shows me from the front, and again, my cape is draped straight down, and then the next panel shows me from the back, and it looks like the wind suddenly kicked up. Ah, uh, I see. Well... And here again, on page 8, my cape is blown off to the side to show a clear view of my bottom. Except this time, we were indoors. No wind. Again, why is that? Uh, I would have to chalk that up to artistic license on Mr. Oxner's part, who wanted to showcase your, uh, feminine form. Uh-huh. And why does Mr. Oxner want to showcase my feminine form? Well, to be perfectly blunt... To be absolutely blunt, this comic was drawn by a guy and was written for guys. And guys want to see a nice piece of calico. Yes! Thank you! Was that really difficult to say, Zoom? Oh, any talk about sexy things gets the professor pretty rattled. Did you know old Zoom here was a virgin up until he was 42? I read that on his blog. Mr. Manning. Aw, he's blushing. Hey, if you didn't want anyone to know... You wouldn't have written it on your blog. Blog? Is that an old West term for journal or something? A blog, an abbreviation for weblog, is an internet-based journal in which writers can share their views on... Internet? As in internetworks? That communication relay system the military has been developing for about a decade now? Lanos... Activating deflection protocols. So, Entity Batgirl, about what did Entity Rod Stromer want to talk to you? Oh, really smooth segue, Lanos. Before we get to that, I should answer your earlier question, Batgirl. I suppose it is difficult for me to talk about the, well, sexualization of female comic book characters mainly because we can go down quite a conversation rabbit hole about the subject that could fill a dozen podcasts. 
But it is not fair to dodge the issue, especially since it is one of the unfortunate realities of the still male-dominated comic book industry that there would be some objectification of female characters in many comic book stories in some degree. And I am not saying that to make excuses or to normalize this issue. To me, such objectification seems to be a needless and, yes, uncomfortable distraction that doesn't really serve the story. And this particular Detective Comics tale is no exception. Fortunately, there are comic book professionals that have the creativity to tell good stories and portray realistic female characters without having to rely on gratuitous provocative poses. There are also comic book writers and artists that are able to use such cheesecake imagery, for lack of a better phrase, to actually serve the story on occasion. Particular tales involving Poison Ivy and Catwoman come to mind. But the use of cheesecake only, for cheesecake's sake, just isn't my cup of tea. I see what you mean by a rabbit hole, but I am glad we addressed this elephant in the room. Thank you. Now, Lanos, to answer your somewhat deflective question, I had recognized Sergeant Rod Stromer after he had mentioned that he was part of the army unit that helped me out in my fight with Madame Zodiac when she had attacked the Pentagon a number of weeks prior. Podcast and audio editor's note. Batgirl's battle with Madame Zodiac, a horoscopologist who attempted to use the Pentagon to tap into mystical astral powers, had taken place in Batman Family, Volume 1, Issue 18. At first, I thought the sergeant had some additional intel on the SAE terrorists, but instead, he started showering me with compliments on my actions in the memorial. His speech was a bit erratic, and I could see he was fidgeting and sweating profusely. He seemed as if he had something desperately to tell me, but didn't quite know how. The sergeant then suddenly took off his helmet, as if he had realized that he had forgotten he was supposed to do so, and then nervously blurted out a question so fast it had taken me a few seconds to register it. I had to ask him to confirm that he had just asked me out, on a date. The poor dear was so nervous, it was adorable, but I couldn't help but think about how weird it was. As Babs Gordon, I had been asked out by all sorts of men, from senators to foreign dignitaries to Dick Grayson. Ah, yes, Dick Grayson, otherwise known as Robin and later n- I mean New Teen Titans leader. If I may say, I do remember that there seemed to be some romantic tension between you and Mr. Grayson in the comic books especially in the pages of the Batman Family comic book series. However, I cannot help but note the age difference between the two of you. I mean, you were the head librarian at the Cotham City Library before Mr. Grayson had graduated high school, and you were a congresswoman shortly after he started college. In fact, if I take into account that Mr. Grayson did not turn 20 until after the 1980 revival of the New Teen Titans... You must have served your two-year congressional term while Dick Grayson was aged 18 and 19. Dick is still 19 now, or at least he is in my time. But speaking of age difference, how old did you say your wife is? Touché. Anyway, Dick and all of those men wanted dates with Babs Gordon. This was the first time someone had asked me for a date as Batgirl. While you're considering the notion, 
Our not-so-confident Sergeant Stromer was already listing a number of reasons why you should not go out with him. With a very endearing display of body language drawn by Bob Oxner in panel two, Perhaps he was trying to let himself down easy, so that you did not have to. So the sergeant was actually quite surprised when you decided to accept his offer. Who knows? I thought, it could be a lot of fun. Rod was indeed surprised that I said yes, but he quickly composed himself and asked where he should pick me up. Ooh, trying to find out where you live right off the bat. I didn't think he was trying to ferret out my secret identity. He was just asking a very ordinary question in what happened to be an extraordinary circumstance. I suggested we meet at the steps of the Capitol building at 7 p.m. Plenty of time to freshen up and change to a clean costume. And I take it you still had some business in the House chambers to deal with in between, Miss Former Congresswoman Gordon. So you had pretty much had already been at your rendezvous. Actually, that work was before the freshening up. Our session adjourned at 5 Forgive my presumption. So between panels four and five on page six, you went back to the Capitol building as Barbara Gordon, taking care of your congressional business, went home to freshen up, and then came back to the Capitol building as Batgirl. Why, yes. I would have had to go over and back regardless, and my apartment is about a half mile from the Capitol, so travel time is negligible. Do you fritter away on every tiny detail every time you do this show? No, don't get him started. Seems like we already did. This comic book reiteration jumped straight to my meeting Rod at 7. So should we. Rod was right on time, and looking pretty smart in his service uniform. I did notice that he may have overdone it a bit with the Lanvin aftershave. Not that he needed it. He actually smelled pretty good when he asked me out earlier that day. Uh, okay. Entity Batgirl's memory is quite impressive, especially with frittering every tiny detail not noted on the comic book page. Lanos. Ha, I guess I am guilty in getting too deep in the details. I suppose I always am in detective mode, noting details and filing them away in my head, or cross-referencing past details with current observations. Which was how you had recognized that the sergeant's particular aftershave was Lanvin. There was no mistaking that spicy green smell, but it was not as strong by the time we had arrived at the restaurant. Good to know, but we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Let us go back to your meeting at the Capitol Steps. The sergeant felt a little awkward calling you Batgirl, and had asked if he could call you BG instead, and you immediately agreed. BG? The Bee Gees, a popular musical group formed in 1958. Their lineup consisted of three brothers, Entity Barry Gibb, Entity Robin Gibb, and Entity Maurice Gibb. Cute. Real cute. Well, some police officers in both Gotham and D.C. would call me B.G. for short, but that was more for efficiency's sake. It wasn't like an endearing nickname or anything. I seem to recall private investigator Jason Bard was the first to call you BG. Oh, well, that was different. We were friends at work, you could say. You mean Batgirl and Mr. Bard were working friends. Though I understand that Barbara Gordon and Mr. Bard, however, were a bit of an item for about a year. At least from Detective Comics Volume 1, issues 392 to 424. Yes, but it wasn't... 
Well, it's complicated. Good relationships usually are. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off topic. Let's just focus on the date with Rod, shall we? Again, I did not see BG as a pet name. I saw it as Rod just wanting to be a little more casual with me. Since this was the first time we were doing something together as friends and not as part of a military operation. And the poor deer was still so nervous. So anything that could help set him at ease. So, since we're all here casual-like, should we be calling you BG? After bringing up the Gibb brothers, certainly not, Mr. Manning. Leave it to Lamo to spoil our chance to get chummy with the first gal to be part of this here wonder show. I see Sergeant Stromer also brought you flowers. Yeah, a corsage. I had not wore one since my high school prom. It was very sweet of him. Rod even went all out and selected a pink dendrobium orchid with a touch of baby's breath and edged with chameleon greenery. Pretty pointy-eared girl sure know about pretty flowers. Indeed, and her eidetic memory allows her to recall her corsage in greater detail than the line work on the comic book story page. I don't know about sitting a missy who can remember everything you say and do. Haha, <laughs> Terraman not know it. Bizarro Lois always forget nothing Bizarro not say, and never make Bizarro remember it. If I may... When I had first taken my wife, Namiko, out for a dinner date, which was technically our third date, I had bought her a corsage as well. It was a small white rose, so it would go with whatever she planned to wear. Because nothing would be more awkward than to ask her, what are you wearing, before you pick her up. Uh, exactly. It was our third date, so I thought it would be good to give her flowers. However, at that stage of our relationship, I would meet Namiko somewhere in the city of San Francisco and not pick her up at her home. So I bought a corsage for her to wear because a bouquet of flowers would have been too cumbersome to carry around during a night on the town. Very smart. I'm sure Rod thought the same thing. Rod's corsage was quite lovely, and while the colors worked with my costume, I have to admit it was rather ludicrous wearing it on the collar of my cape. But then, I suppose wearing my back row costume on a date was rather ludicrous, too. Well, what else could you do? You had a secret identity to protect. True. I suppose wearing my cowl with an evening dress would have been even more ridiculous. Well, perhaps a Mammy Atchison original. <laughs> Maybe. A Mammy what now? Entity Zoom Yukonori is referring to Entity Mammy Atchison a female fashion trendsetter whose life Entity Batgirl had saved in the story chronicled in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issues 410 and 411. After the ordeal, Entity Mammy Atchison decided to challenge the current mini, midi, and maxi skirt trend and created a new line of skin-tight leggings inspired by Entity Batgirl's costume. But back to the date. Rod made reservations at Trabogis, an Italian restaurant near Ford's Theater, a cozy little place where Rod said no one would bother us. And on panel 3 of page 7, that statement was juxtaposed by the scene of what had actually happened at that restaurant. <laughs> oh, yes. 
Practically everyone in the restaurant, from the other diners to the restaurant staff, wanted an autograph, either on menus or on the evening edition of the newspaper, which carried the story of the Lincoln Memorial incident. Rod didn't expect this to happen. And to be honest, neither did I. I'd never gone out for a meal as Batgirl. I guess it's just one of the necessary evils of being a celebrity. And that was one of the aspects of this story that made it so memorable to me. The idea that you were a celebrity as much as you were a crime fighter. Similar to Green Lantern in his early Silver Age adventures. As opposed to some terrifying vigilante who may have been seen as some urban legend like Batman. I'm not sure what you mean by Silver Age. But Batman was essentially a celebrity crime fighter too. And as I recall... He was maybe an urban legend, as you put it, for about a month until he was deputized by the Gotham police. Neither of us were really terrifying vigilantes, just intimidating. Though we did spook quite a number of bad guys by our sudden appearances and disappearances. Bad guys and your father, Commissioner James Gordon. Batman did most of that. I think it was his idea for having some fun at his expense. I had essentially pulled disappearing acts on him because I didn't want him to get too close while I was trying to keep my identity secret. I wasn't sure if I would have been able to fool my father completely, and as I would soon discover, I really didn't fool him at all. Podcast and audio editor's note. While it seemed he may have known all along, the first time it was revealed that Commissioner Gordon knew that his daughter Barbara was Batgirl was in the Batgirl story printed in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 417. However, he had kept this knowledge a secret, waiting for Barbara to reveal her Batgirl identity to him herself, which she had done in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 422. But back to the dinner at Trabocchi's. How many autographs did you sign? Dozens. But to be honest, I didn't mind it as much as Rod. The repetition helped me drift my mind a bit to the clue that SAE terrorists said about the 16-to-1 odds of my finding out their next target. The answer seemed to be right there in the words, but it hadn't clicked for me yet. Ah, I myself had found that when I'm inking my drawings, the repetitive stroke of the pen gives me a similar zen-like state of mind to focus my thoughts. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. The fans essentially gave me a moment of zen. But Sergeant Stromer did bring up an interesting topic in the dinner conversation while you were signing away. Yes. Rod told me that he had heard talk around the Pentagon about launching an investigation into my activities. It seemed that some of the top officials were not too happy about the damage from my fight to stop Madame Zodiac. Right. As I recall from Batman Family Volume 1, Issue 18... Madame Zodiac was using the Pentagon as a mystic pentagram to tap into the magical astral energy that resided in the stars. So you had to intentionally damage a wall of the Pentagon in order to break that pentagram and remove those powers. Yeah. And apparently, all the gunfire at the Lincoln Memorial earlier that day did not help matters. But having you distract the SAEers was the Army's idea. True. It was. I told Rod not to worry too much about it. I said I would welcome the investigation and let them figure out just how much damage there would have been if I was not around. I had wondered if this was the seed of a story subplot that would germinate in a later story. 
But I do not recall that anything had come out of this in future. Um, it may be a subplot to you, but this was actually my life. In truth, I was a little concerned that such an investigation would eventually uncover my secret identity. But I had planned to use whatever influence I could as Congresswoman Gordon to steer the investigators away from that particular bit of information. As it turned out, I had nothing to worry about. Growing tensions in the Middle East had required more and more of the Pentagon's attention, so they essentially dropped the matter. That's good. Anyway, our dinner orders had arrived while I was still signing the autographs. But by the time I signed the last one, my chicken parmigiana had gone cold. And there is nothing worse than cold chicken parmigiana. Rod had eaten a little of his tagliatella while I was signing, and it was sweet enough to flag the waiter to bring me a new plate. But I didn't feel like eating anyway, just knowing that the SAE terrorists were going to strike again and I had a chance to prevent it. If only I could figure out that darn clue. So Rod had the waiter pack up the food in doggy bags, which he kept in the back of his car as he drove me to the next venue. I should point out that this entire restaurant scene was cleverly blocked out in one single comic book page. And that full page of dinner was then followed by one full page of dancing on page 8. Well, sort of. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves, Professor. Rod had mentioned that there was a live band playing at the rec hall at his base. Very cute that his plans for our date was essentially dinner and dancing. It was actually kind of sweet. Solomon Grundy say, dinner and dancing, very classic. Am untried and false. Timeless. But a little corny. Yes, a little corny, but also sweet. He was really trying his darndest to show me a good time. I must say that Bob Oxner had laid out an effective establishing panel of the dance hall on the first panel of page 8. It is a clever medium shot using virtually no background detail. Or perhaps anchor Vince Coletta had erased it all, as he was notorious to do. At any rate, even with the solid color backdrop, the angle of the people on the dance floor, and the two horn players on the far right of the panel, clearly placed the reader right on the center of the bandstage, watching you and your date dancing cheek to cheek, while two other soldiers were sending some... Well, I presume they were friendly jibes at Sergeant Stromer. Right. They didn't believe that I was the real McCoy, as one of them put it. That wasn't the first time someone had seen me in costume and thought I was a phony Batgirl. Indeed. There was that one caper with Darlene Dawson that comes to my mind. You know about that? Oh, right. Another Detective Comics story, I bet. Indeed. Detective Comics Volume 1, Issues 388 and 389, involved an airline stewardess named Darlene Dawson, who was secretly using her job as a means to smuggle stolen jewels from other countries. She had planned to pass her latest haul to a gang that hired her at a costume party arranged by her airline, dressed in a Batgirl costume. Right. Darlene had put out an ad in the paper offering a rent-free apartment to a red-haired female, which was too good of an offer to pass up. It seemed Darlene was looking for someone that looked enough like her to be able to go to the costume party in her place in the back row costume, and by sheer coincidence, I was the best candidate. She gave me a story that her grandfather's birthday was on the same evening as her company function, at which she would have been honored for her perfect attendance record. So she told me this was her plan to attend the party while not attending the party. 
She, of course, didn't mention her smuggling scheme or that the weapons bag of her fake backroll costume was carrying the jewels. Actually, the bag was carrying fake copies of the jewels while she made off with the real loot. She was essentially leaving me to take the fall to the smuggling gang, who were at the costume party dressed as members of the Justice League, by the way. Right. It was very fun to see you essentially beating up the Justice League in that story, as the costumed gang had no idea that you were the real Batgirl. There was another story that involved you being mistaken for a female crook disguised as Batgirl. I think the woman's name was Jilly. This was in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 416, and the aforementioned 417. Jilly. Right. She was working for a mob boss trying to cover up an unintentional murder of a plainclothes policeman by one of his henchmen. The plan was for the fake Batgirl to lead my father to pin the murder on the leader of an impulsive militant group that hated the police. They were hoping for my father to get caught in a firefight when he tried to make an arrest and kill the militant leader in self-defense so his innocence could not be proven. They were also hoping my father would get killed by the rest of the group in retaliation. I managed to catch up to my father, stop the fight, and take out the fake. Then I was picked up by the mob boss and the cop-killing henchmen who thought that I was Jilly. I decided to turn their fake backroll scheme around on them until I could get an opportunity to take them down. But that plan started to go pear-shaped when they wanted you to change out of your costume. Right. I was stealing up a strategy to take them out before they could go for their guns. Except my father ended up trailing me and brought police backup to arrest them both. I'm sure you would have taken them if he hadn't arrived. Oh, sure. But I was actually glad that Dad showed up. The policeman who was murdered was a friend of his, so Dad should have been the one to catch that killer. And he did it without any help from me. Going back to you and Sergeant Stromer at the rec hall, despite the sergeant's affirmation of your identity, one of the heckling soldiers essentially cut in on your dance and pushed Sergeant Stromer aside, chiding, Come on, you can't fake us out. I'm betting that's really Margie Tannenbaum under that mask. The other heckling soldier then reached toward Batgirl, saying, Only one way to find out. Right. He tried to remove my mask so sure that I was this Margie person. I love the little sly smile you have as you casually grab that soldier's wrist. Bet you knew it was coming next, huh? This wasn't the first time some guy went for the mask. And no, you don't have to cite any examples, Zoom. Ah, uh, understood. Sorry if that was a little snippy. It's just a little weird knowing that my life on your Earth is broken down into a bunch of funny book stories, you know? Stories that were read and enjoyed by readers all over. Aw, that's sweet. Your wife is lucky to have you. That's kind of you to say, but it's actually the other way around. Are you two gonna keep making with the taffy, or can we finally get to the action? Keeping us on task? He has the makings of a fine producer. Aw, shucks, little missy. I suppose Mr. Manning enjoys the taffy as much as the next man. Grundy thought Cowboy Man was next man. Very droll, Mr. Grundy. Batgirl? Well, I knew this soldier just wanted to prove he was right, and under normal circumstances, I would just swat his hand away. But this frat boy in a uniform needed to learn not to be handsy with a lady. As we see in the action-packed fourth panel of this page, now, the form, as drawn by Bob Oxner in this panel, seems to be a bit off. 
but it appeared that you used the Ippon Seoi Nage judo move, or the one-arm shoulder throw, to dissuade the soldier. Heh, <laughs> Batgirl slatted that slazy slang wanger so hard, I bet his young'uns will be born dizzy. Actually, it wasn't as spectacular as depicted here in the drawing. I just threw him down to the floor right in front of me. I didn't flip him across the room a few times like we see here. And I see in this panel that, after the final flip, the soldier was somehow facing the opposite direction than he should had when he hit the floor. I suppose this was an over-exaggerated Ippon Seo Nage, with a twist. <laughs> Indeed. It does make for a, to use your word, spectacular panel, though. True, true. At any rate, my throwdown did make the soldier consider that I may have been the genuine article, but it definitely put a halt to the festivities. Sarad took my hand and suggested we take our leave. Indeed. And as we read in the thought balloons of the final panel, Sergeant Stromer felt that your first date had essentially turned into a disaster. He also figured that you were so mad from that recent altercation with his fellow soldiers that you would not talk to him. Is that what he... Oh, oh no, no. I was not mad at Rod at all. I was just lost in thought. Still trying to figure out that 16 to 1 odds clue on the terrorist's next target. I suppose there were a number of times that I was not really giving him my full attention. I believe that became evident in the following page, as Sergeant Stromer was apologizing to you as he was driving you around Washington, D.C. in... Wait, is that a Porsche? A Porsche? Oh, no. Rod had one of those new Mazdas, if I recall. And you would definitely recall. But on the page, it looks like a Porsche 911 Coupe. Perhaps a mid-1970s model. 1970s? Just how far in the future are we? Oh, uh, uh, a Mazda, you say? An RX-7, perhaps? Really smooth deflection protocols, Professor. Just keeping us on task. Right, okay. I think you're right about the model. I just remember the car was a pretty tight fit. Sounds like Sergeant Loverboy wanted to get him in real close. In close proximity to what? Maybe Grundy can get more girls if Grundy drove Porsche RX-7. Me think Stromerod apology sincere, since he not blame Batgirl's ordinary costume for perfect evening. Wait, Rod was blaming me? Bizarro is referring to the sergeant's word balloon in the first panel of page 9. Sergeant Stromer did say that he was sorry with how the evening was turning out, but also pointed out that, no matter where you two went, there would be people that would react to your costume, and he felt that those reactions scuppered your evening. Well, Rod did have a point. I had to wear the costume because, as you had said, to protect my secret identity. But I agreed to the date, maybe as a little dare to myself. When I wear my backer costume... I'm usually out on patrol or fighting crime. With this broadcast, wait, you call it a podcast here? With this podcast being the exception, I don't really socialize with anyone as backroll, except maybe the police, but even then it's usually related to a case. But that's just fine. Babs Gordon has a very social life. Backroll didn't need one. But when Rod asked me out, I thought I would see what it was like for other heroes like Superman or Green Lantern who would frequently take their girlfriends out on dates in costume. I always thought the idea was a little goofy, personally. I can see that. 
But in your case? Oh, it was definitely goofy. But wow, I really wasn't paying attention to Rod in the car. I don't remember hearing him say any of that in the car. Right. As you had said, you were still thinking about the clue about the next SAE terrorist target. Well, because of the public reaction to your costume and your celebrity status, Sergeant Stromer was trying to think of a place to take you where there were no other people around. Uh-huh. I'm sure that was the only reason he wanted to get her alone. Mr. Manning. So, last century. Uh, back to the story. As the sergeant was thinking of a public, yet vacant, place to take you, he saw a familiar district landmark in the distance, and joked that you two should spend the rest of your date climbing the Washington Monument, betting that there would be nobody there. Oh, now that makes more sense. I was only half listening to Rod, but when I heard the words Washington Monument, the SAE's clue had suddenly clicked. Rod's first reaction was to ask me if I really wanted to climb the monument, and at the time, I had no idea what he was talking about. Because, as you said, you were only half listening. Right. I just said that. Little Professor Man, mansplaining again? Mansplaining? Oh, I get it. That's a good one. Can I use that? I know a number of people at the HR&D that this term would be apt for. Uh, I suppose I cannot stop you. However, I am concerned that... I do not calculate any disruptions to the Earth-1 timeline by Entity Batgirl's adoption of this 21st century colloquial expression. 21st century, hmm? Lanos. Oh, Batgirl would have figured it out eventually. You're darn tootin', Mr. Manning. And it doesn't really matter if I know when and where I am, since you're being careful not to reveal my own future. Well, yes, I suppose so. There was, is, a risk bringing you here from 1981 instead of a more recent year. But it was important that we talk to you while you were, I mean, while this date was still relatively fresh in your mind. Uh-huh. I think the less we talk about that, the better, okay? Maybe we should just get back to the story. Right. Very good, then. You had spent the last few panels of page 9 explaining the SAE's clue to Sergeant Stromer, so why don't you fill the podcast listeners in on that now? Sure thing. As you know, the SAE said the odds were 16 to 1, that I wouldn't be able to find their next target in time. This was at the Lincoln Memorial that afternoon, and Lincoln was the 16th president. So going from 16 to 1 is going from Lincoln to Washington, which meant the Washington Monument. Ugh, it was so obvious when I figured out the answer that I was surprised I didn't figure it out earlier. And I suppose I was also surprised that the SAE-er would drop that clue in the first place. Oh, I can say from experience that that's just something bad guys do. It's the way they taunt them thar do-gooders by giving just a little hint, a sporting chance to stop their plans. And if the hero don't figure it out, it makes the bad guys win even more sweet, because it proves the bad guys more clever. Well, not this time. Rod made a beeline for the monument as I unpinned my corsage, because my date and I had to go to work. At the top of page 10, you and Sergeant Stromer were already at the monument, out of the car, and sprinting, um, towards the entrance? 
even though in this panel the entrance was actually between where you were and where the sergeant's car was parked. Actually, we went up to the two sprawled guards that were beyond the entrance, who are in the foreground of this panel. Once we saw that they were breathing and just knocked out, we then went for the monument. Since we were too late to head them off, I figured the SAE terrorists must have been inside. And you were right, because in the next panel, gunfire from the entrance had forced you and the sergeant to hit the ground and stop your advance. It was the sixth terrorist from that afternoon, the leader. He was standing in the entrance with a machine gun, but I could see that there were at least three other SAEers inside the monument before they closed the entrance door. The leader remained outside and held us at gunpoint. He threatened to damage the monument unless we got back in the car and drove away. So, the terrorist that tried to gun you down on pages 1 and 2 was now willing to simply let you go? Don't expect me to understand how these guys think. I honestly don't know how the Squadron for the Advancement of Everybody expects to advance anybody by blocking access to district landmarks. Anyway, we got back into the car and Rod started to back away. And then he threw the car into forward drive and gunned it back toward the entrance. We ducked down behind the dashboard as best we could and braced ourselves while the SAE leader emptied his gun clip shooting the windshield. The leader dove out of the way as we rammed the car into the entrance door to knock it down. Predictably, this caused the other three terrorists to scurry out of the monument by climbing over the hood of the car. We were mostly hidden from view because it was night and they couldn't see through the cracked windshield, but at any second the leader, the other SAEers called him Hector, would recover from his dive and shout a warning. So when one of the three SAEers was about to get to my side of the car, I immediately opened the door to knock him back. But because he was leaping down from the hood, I accidentally hit him, uh, where it counts. Ooch, that's one heck of a door jam. I presume Sergeant Stromer tried to do the same thing. Well, at least hit him with the car door. But from the looks of panel 4, the SAEer on his side managed to avoid the door. However, the sergeant did manage to punch that terrorist in the ribs, making him drop his gun and stunning him long enough for the sergeant to step out of the car and knock him out with a forceful right cross. The third terrorist was still scrabbling over the car. I managed to grab the base of his gun and predictably he tried to wrestle it back from me. But that was the plan. It forced him off balance so I could easily swing him into the wall of the monument, which took him out of the fight. Right. In the word balloon, you called that move your swing shot. I didn't know such thing. It took so much effort I could barely take a breath, much less talk. This Bob Rosakis fellow must have added that word balloon banter to try to make the story more entertaining. Oh, I've always wondered about how you costumed heroes were able to talk so much while fighting. We don't. Noted. Meanwhile, during all of that commotion, Hector, the SAE leader, tried to slip away again. Oh, oh no. Hector wasn't pulling that getaway at me twice in the same day. Ah, I take it you were just reading that word balloon in panel 3 of page 12, in which you snared Hector with your bat line. As you had just told me, you don't... Oh no, I actually did say that to Hector as I captured him. Some of those word balloons are accurate. Oh, and now you're just going to leave me guessing which words you had actually said and which ones you didn't, aren't you? I gotta have my fun whenever I can. Hmm. Well, the next panel's caption box stated that the police had arrived and had already taken the four terrorists away. 
and I suppose they had also arranged for a tow truck to haul away the sergeant's car. Yes, the attack plan worked, but it totaled his car. Rod would have to walk all the way back to the base. But it was a nice night for a walk, so I figured, why should the date end then? So we set off to find an all-night diner, hopefully one without any Batgirl fans in it. And that was the end of A Date with Batgirl. From Detective Comics, Volume 1, Issue 463. Wait a minute. That's it? But how did the rest of the date go? Did you even get to the first goalpost? I believe the term you wanted to use, Entity Terraman, was first base. Gentlemen. Sorry, no details, boys. But I will have you know that Sergeant Rod Stromer was a perfect gentleman the rest of the evening. So, no sugar. Now, I didn't say that. Now, boys. Why don't we focus on the details of the date that we do know, hmm? To summarize, this 12-page story was a delightful example of how quirky some Bronze Age DC comic book tales could be. The story premise was indeed silly, but a very enjoyable read. The threat of the SAE terrorists provided most of the action, but they were essentially a two-dimensional cardboard adversary. From your perspective, maybe. Well, the story had given us just a vague notion of their manifesto, and their agenda was also undefined, aside from their M.O. of occupying district landmarks. However, as you had stated earlier, Batgirl, it was not clear what the SAE had hoped to gain from such an occupation. Yes, but that was because we had managed to stop both occupations before they had an opportunity to state their demands. True. However, that lack of detail actually did not matter. The SAE served to bring Batgirl and the Army together at the beginning of the story, and give Sergeant Stromer the opportunity to ask Batgirl out on a date. And really, it was that date that provided both the joy and the hot of this story. Mr. Rosakis then cleverly employed the SAE to bookend the tale by having them serve as the threat that our dating couple had to stop, which would essentially be the one thing that went right on an evening where everything else had gone wrong. Regarding the artwork by Bob Oxner and Vince Coletta, while some of the character poses had looked a little awkward here and there, as we had mentioned earlier, the storytelling was very solid and the effective use of facial expressions and body language augmented the very relatable dialogue in Bob Rosakis's unusual, yet down-to-earth, script. My favorite examples include the fidgeting Sergeant Stromer while he was asking you out, the look on your face after you had a bite of the cold chicken parmigiana, and again that sly smile as you were about to deal with that soldier trying to unmask you in the dance hall. And if you do not mind my saying so, the art team did render a very attractive Batgirl. Rod looked quite handsome here as well, though he had a bit more of a boyish face in real life. Putting aside those few suggestive displays of your posterior in a few panels, the only other quibble I have with the artwork is the lack of backgrounds in a majority of pages. In fact, there are two pages in this story that have no backgrounds at all. Given the level of detail I had seen in Mr. Oxner's cartoon work, 
I am more inclined to believe that the lack of backgrounds had been the result of the ink work of Vince Coletta, or lack thereof. Mr. Coletta had been known to erase details and even whole backgrounds from the panels of penciled pages in order to shave time and have the artwork print ready by the deadline, which was a top priority for a periodical publisher. It had also been said that Mr. Coletta believed that the amount of effort he should put into his work should match the amount of compensation for said work, and at a time when page rates were low, this may have been a case in which the publisher essentially got what they paid for. I should be clear that this is mere speculation on my part. I would need to see the original art pages firsthand to be completely sure. Also, this was a minor quibble, because there were enough establishing shots in the beginning of most scenes to help create a sense of setting, and the lack of backgrounds actually helped place the reader focus on the characters and the action, which was not a bad thing. However, there were a few panels in which an absent background created a problem for me. For example, page 4, one of the pages with zero backgrounds, could have benefited from having at least a rendering of the Lincoln Memorial flooring, so that characters standing in the distant background would not float amidst the solid color backdrop. I do not believe Sergeant Rod Stromer had any further appearances in a DC comic. Was this the only time you had seen him? We had met up a few more times since that night, mostly for a late-night cup of coffee at that all-night diner we had managed to find. But it wouldn't have worked out. Rod was sweet, but I really had no reason to consider him as more than a friend. And his attraction to Batgirl essentially boiled down to a celebrity crush. We did stay in touch via mail after I had returned to Gotham. In his last letter, Rod mentioned that he had actually started dating that Margie Tannenbaum. Good for him. I hope he finds the love he's looking for. Now, if you'll excuse me, boys, I need to be getting back to 1981. There's a certain Mr. Jim Dover that has set some plans for a date with Babs Gordon. Ah, of course. Lenos will see you home. I hope you have a good time. Activating Transdimensional Portal to Earth-1 Gotham City, New Jersey, January 23rd, 1981, at 1930 Coordinated Universal Time. Thank you again for taking the time to be part of our humble podcast, Batgirl. Anytime, Professor. It's been fun. Say, Batgirl, if that Dover gent ever gets out of line... Grundy and I are more than happy to help straighten him out. Yeah. Aw, that's mighty chivalrous of you to offer Tobias, even if the sentiment is so last century. Later, boys. Now that was one strapper of a sage hen. Too bad she was way out of my league. It was good of you to realize that, Mr. Manning. I do not think I have ever seen you so smitten. It was almost... What's the word? Adorable. Aw, go jump in the swamp, you overgrown... Gentlemen, why don't we take a brief podcast promo break? And when we return, we will pay a visit to the Dunnan One Wonders Electronic Mailroom. Sawate. 
My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967-1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Deep within the basement of a single-story suburban home in the outskirts of Daly City, California, the unabashedly conceited Professor Zoom took pity on classic DC comic book characters who found themselves out of work in the aftermath of one reality-altering crisis after another. So he gave them all jobs. In the Done in One Wonders, Electronic Mailroom. Entity Zoom Yukonori. I had detected our eighth iTunes review for the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show, and it is five stars. However, there is no iTunes handle or review to transcribe. Well, a review isn't necessary, Lenos. And thank you, mysterious listener, for enhancing our iTunes ratings to help get our show noticed. Lenos, are there any new email responses? Negative. Voicemail? Affirmative. Accessing one voicemail response received on September 9th, 2018 at 2338 Coordinated Universal Time. Hello, Zoom. This is the Fire and Water listener and commenter known as Warty Hill Perry just calling you um, because I've driving to work this morning. I heard the first half hour of the brand new series of Venom One Wonders, and of course, love it because I love your work. Then I spent uh, most of the afternoon going down the rabbit hole that is Omelette au Fromage and rereading the stories of Zoom and his loves. And uh, I love your writing, Zoom, and I feel like I, I really know you, which is odd because you're, you're this guy with a podcast and a website, but still, your stories are wonderful. So I'm looking forward to my ride home today and hearing the rest of it, and uh, I'll keep listening if you keep making them. Thanks a lot, Zoom. Bye-bye. Thank you for the kind words, Mr. Terry. I hope you did enjoy the rest of the sixth episode. 
Entity Ward Hill Terry had submitted a feedback response to the show page for the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show Episode 6, Knocked for a Loop, on September 23, 2018 at 1739 Coordinated Universal Time, stating, Welcome back, Done in One Wonders. This podcast is so delightful on many levels. From the background soundscape, to the carefully calibrated voices, to the intricate script to sustain a narrative over the series, to the positively Proustian reactions to specific comic books, I delight in it all. Zoom, your time and space travel explanations show that you have read too many comics. You are, and I mean this lovingly, such a geek. Thank you, Mr. Terry. I try. As for this issue of Green Lantern, I vaguely remember it. If it is indeed in my collection, it may be one of the last issues of GL that I bought, after having bought the title for the previous five years. I came back when Steve Englehart began writing, so obviously my reaction to it is not the same as yours. Entity Ward Hill Terry also recommended that listeners of this podcast and readers of these comments should read... Hold up there, Lamu. I just realized we plum forgot to mention our sponsor. Our sponsor? This show does not have a sponsor. It sure does. This here wonder show is sponsored, in part, by Omelette Au Fromage Blogspot, your online source for thoughts, memoirs, and exclusive artwork scribed by the professor himself. And you get up to 40% more of that webbed site's free content when you already read 60% or more. Mr. Manning, really? What you got, Grundy? Solomon Grundy liked reading First Impression, Tinfoil Girl, Still Got It, and First Dance, which was all multi-part story of how Little Professor Man got together with Purdy Namiko Girl. Found in April, May, and June 2012 blog posts. The December 21st, 2014 entry entitled Let's Get Metaphysical, in which entity Zoom Yukonori had a strange encounter with a mysterious vision in white, was quite intriguing. Me hate unfunny song Yukonori Zoom wrote for television commercial buying women's outerwear to 1320 May post blog. And that July 2012 entry, called Exploration, was a very educational story about how a 42-year-old boy had done become a man. Oh my. And you can find all these and loads more free content on the link to that blogspot site in the show page of each episode. Or just type... Zoom hyphen Yukonori at blogspot.com on that thar webbed browser on your screen. Now, back to the show. How long did it take you to come up with that bit, Mr. Manning? About three weeks. 
Ah. As I had intended to state before this rather timely interruption, Entity Ward Hill Terry also recommended listeners of this podcast and readers of these comments to read your blog, stating that your story of Entity Danielle Parsons and its follow-ups are there, as well as other poignant, warm, and funny tales of Entity Zoom Yukonori's life. Entity Ward Hill Terry also stated that he had previously shared his reactions to your story with you. That is correct. In September of last year, Mr. Terry and I had a brief back and forth on Twitter regarding my blog post about Dan. He had asked me how long I had kept the clothes that Dan had worn on that Friday evening. I had actually left them in the knapsack on a small side shelf in the closet of my room for years. Until one day in 1988, as I was preparing to store my belongings while I was about to live in Singapore, and I realized that the knapsack was just... gone. My parents did not recall what had happened to it, but they figured that they must have donated it by mistake in one of their routine gatherings of unused items to take to the charity shop. And I suspect that that may have happened during the previous year, while I was living abroad for about six months. But I am glad that you're enjoying my blog enough to recommend it to others, Mr. Terry, though I hope your reading it did not interfere with getting your work done. That Tim Price gent grunted like so much had also dropped a comment about episode 6 after we had already recorded episode 7. He wrote, First, I wasn't collecting Green Lantern back then, but I liked the story a lot. Seeing the artwork, I'm very impressed by Pollard and D. Carlo. Without knowing how old this issue is, the art style would make me think it was 80s or 90s. Easy to see that Mark Bright might have been inspired by this GL era for his own work. Who's Mark Bright? Mark Bright was another comic book artist that would illustrate many Green Lantern adventures, starting in the late 1980s, when the character was an ongoing feature in Action Comics Weekly, all the way through the early 1990s, including the character's revival with two Emerald Dawn miniseries and a number of stories in the third volume of the Green Lantern series. And now that Mr. Price had mentioned it, I do see a semblance of Keith Pollard's work in Mr. Bright's art style. That Price hombre also wrote, Second, the story within the podcast is still a treat. The Zoom crew, meeting Earth-1 Zoom, fixing space-time, it's such Silver Age trippy fun. You obviously work very hard on that, and it's appreciated. And we appreciate your appreciation, sir. Uh, right. Third, it feels almost hollow by comparison to even mention the previous points, when the most powerful part of the episode was Dan's story. You're a brave soul to share that, and beautifully done. Peace, good sir. Thank you, Mr. Rice. Now accessing 14 responses from 8 listeners to the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, Episode 7, Letter Late Than Never. 
Entity Martin Gray on September 28, 2018, at 1029 Coordinated Universal Time stated, I love feedback shows. I looked up eidetic memory, which you mentioned that you have. I didn't realize photographic memory hadn't actually been proven to exist. I have geek memory. I can remember day, channel, and time slots for pretty much any TV show I read about in the Radio Times or TV Times of the 70s, and issue numbers for most any story from the Bronze Age. I bet most of the people reading have this. For example, without looking it up, I am sure at least one regular here could identify this brief exchange from a 1970 DC comic. Zhao, what's that? Not what? Who? Ah, yes, that was from Entity Ange on September 30th, 2018 at 2317 Coordinated Universal Time responded. Ah, the intro to Nasty Luthor. Okay, at least I knew where to look. Entity Martin Gray on September 30th, 2018 at 2324 Coordinated Universal Time responded. Phew, thank you for helping make my point. Legendary. Indeed it was. And to clarify the point for the other listeners, Mr. Gray and Dr. Ange were referring to the opening splash page of the second story in Adventure Comics, Volume 1, Issue 397, Supergirl Meets Nasty, which was the introduction of Nasthalthia Luthor, who was Luthor's niece. But Nasthalthia, or Nasty for short, was not the daughter of Lex's sister Lena, but the daughter of another, older sister of Lex's, who had eloped with a European gentleman and apparently did not take her husband's name. This was revealed in the letter column of Adventure Comics, Volume 1, Issue 401. However, as far as I know, this other Luthor sibling was never named, nor ever mentioned, in any other comic book story, especially not in the ones in which Lex Luthor would refer to his family. Nasty had become a recurring adversary for both Supergirl and Linda Lee Danvers, as she was constantly trying to prove that Linda and Supergirl were one and the same. Entity Nastalthia Luthor had appeared in the Supergirl stories published in Adventure Comics Volume 1, Issue 397, 401, 406 through 408, 410 through 412, 414, 418, 421, 422, and 424. Thank you, Lanos. Haha, <laughs> Bizarro not like pretend not speak unlike Lamo computer. Non-entity Franklin Chris on 8-2 September 1820 at 4815 uncoordinated local time not say. With many doubts the least creative feedback show in podcast future. Awfully undone crew. Um, thank you Mr. Franklin. 
Though really, it was nothing more than the crew and I just sitting here in the studio, reading the feedback, and having to deal with the occasional crank calls. Interspatial Chronal Transmissions. Right. Solomon Grundy, read response from Siskoid. Siskoid say, Leave it to Zoom to put a narrative in a simple feedback show. Siskoid check fire and water spam folder and found lot more supervillain applications. But our filter is obscurity sensitive to cut down Diablo Frank's comments to manageable size. So you never got the following. Scabbard, Eiffel Ethel, The Eraser, Scramble the Mixed Up Man, Mod Gorilla Boss, and The Beef Eater. Well, I bet they wouldn't have made it anyway. I have no idea who all them yahoos are. Accessing data files for... And I don't want to know. Oh. Then Tim Price replied to Siskoid. No zebra man? Disappointed. Then Siskoid say, Zebra man stopped being obscure when Zebra man joined Strike Force Cobra. Then Tim Price say, What comic was that in again, Siskoid? You seem to remember. Then Siskoid say, Who's who? Cough. Solomon Grundy think there must be joke in there somewhere, but Solomon Grundy don't get it. I'll explain it to you later, Mr. Grundy, for I am sure Mr. Albert would not care for me to mention a comic book series that he does not particularly care for. But to give the other listeners a hint, the title sounds like Outsiders. Exactly like Outsiders, that is. J. Kevin Collier wrote... I'll admit, I was a little dubious about the idea of an all-feedback episode, but I should have known the Zoom crew wouldn't let me down. So many funny bits scattered throughout. I have a special fondness for the more goofy and obscure Batman villains, so it was a special treat to have cameos by Pokey Dot Man, Clue Master, and the Cavalier. Gotham City is in New Jersey. Well, I guess that makes as much sense as anything, I suppose. After the heavier content of the previous episode, this was a nice palate cleanser, setting us up for the adventures to come. Shag does a great Frank Welker-esque dark side. Whatever that means. Keep those episodes coming. Thank you, Mr. Cayer. Though it was never mentioned in a comic book story as far as I know, but I may be wrong, Gotham City being located in New Jersey was first stated in a Batman informational segment printed in The Amazing World of DC Comics issue 14. It was further clarified in the Mayfair DC Heroes role-playing game in their Atlas of the DC Universe guidebook. Many comic fans that I know had stated that they viewed Gotham City to be an analog of New York City, and thus believed Gotham must be in the state of New York. Many fans also say the same thing about the city of Metropolis as well. Metropolis, Delaware is located in the state of Delaware. Right, as the Amazing World issue and the Atlas of the DC Universe had also stated. 
But going back to the New York analog for both cities, I am reminded of an often repeated quote by DC Comics writer and editor Dennis O'Neill from the afterword in his 1994 Batman Nightfall novelization. Quote, Batman's Gotham City is Manhattan below 14th Street at 11 minutes past midnight on the coldest night in November. And Metropolis is Manhattan between 14th and 100th Streets in the brightest, sunniest July day of the year. Entity Tim Price on October 1st, 2018 at 4.15 Coordinated Universal Time stated... Having a story within the feedback was delightful. Thank you for another fine show, Grundy. Tim Price looking forward to more. Especially another meeting with other Grundy. Tim Price almost passed out laughing the last time. But Tim Price is confused. Solomon Grundy says Tim Price talks funny? That's strange. Nobody's told Tim Price that before. Solomon Grundy didn't tell Tim Price that Tim Price talk funny. Solomon Grundy told Bizarro. Maybe that's why nobody tell Tim Price. Right Baker Mark not say. Yay, praise. Non-parodies of old-fashioned minor-specific should never be allowed to not be played to incompletion. Podcast Listener Land listeners should go to Episode 7 show notes to read what that really means. Meanwhile, Solomon Grundy read response from Sphinx Magoo. Sphinx Magoo say... Sphinx Magoo was a bit concerned after hearing all these villain applications to show... While everyone seems to be getting along well, Sphinx Magoo worry about another reverse flash incident. Perhaps you'd like to consider a hero instead. Sphinx Magoo suggests Vartox. What's a Varmox? Entity Vartox, hero of the distant planet Valeron, within the Sombrero Galaxy, is a possessor of hyper powers that are reportedly greater than the superpowers of Entity Superman. That is correct, Lanos. However, his planet Valeron was destroyed in Action Comics Volume 1, Issue 498. And much like Superman, Vartox later adopted another new world that he had sworn to protect, the planet Tynola. Tynola, you say? I did, Mr. Manning. Why do you ask? Oh, uh, nothing. Just sounded like the name of my favorite, er, corn grease, I reckon. Oh, okay. Well, for those out there in podcast listening land that want to find out more about Vartox, I would recommend you do a search for Christian's brilliant Chris's on Infinite Earths blog, in which he had covered every pre-crisis and post-crisis appearance of the Valeronian hero or as Chris had affectionately called him, the manliest man who ever manned. This Vartox history was also encapsulated in episode 111 of Mr. Sheehan's and Reggie Hemingway's Cosmic Treadmill podcast. That concludes all responses to the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show, episode 7, Letter Late Than Never. 
Thank you, Lenos. And again, my thanks to you all for leaving responses on the episode show page. And now, let us acknowledge those who... No excuse necessary. Me not have unimportant announcement. Bizarro Kent Clark number one. Why you am ready to stay yet? Me had Bizarro Brats not waiting for minutes. And we not there yet, mommy. Bizarro Brat Lois Jr. no wanna not stay later. Later. Just no minute, Bizarro Lois number one, Bun Honey. You, Bun Honey, I not take care of them. Later. No way. Say cheese. Wait a minute. What are you? What the Sam Hill was that? That fancy ray gun didn't do nothing. What the hill Sam was not am. Unfancy ray gun not do something. Who said that? Oh no. Adios, partner. Me and Bizarro Terra Man. Mm, Bizarro. What in tarnation did you do? It appears that Bizarro had used the Bizarro Duplicator Ray to make Bizarro duplicates of all of us. Goodbye, me and Bizarro Professor Zoom. Non-greetings and unsalutations. Me and Bizarro Lamo. Me and latest attempt to not offer solutions. Grundy's Bizarro copy have too much color. Goodbye to you all. Bizarro Grundy is not my name, and not being a Bizarro duplicate of Solomon Grundy is not my game. Bizarro, what is this? I mean, why you not make Bizarro duplicates of we? Professor Zoom, no forget Bizarro Lois. Goodbye. No, Bizarro, of course not. That is the Bizarro Lois Lane Lamo told us about in that there who's who reading? <sighs> She's even uglier than I pictured. How sweet am you to not say. You recall how I saved the pre-crisis Bizarro before the destruction of Bizarro World in DC Comics Presents Volume 1, Issue 97? By using the Bizarro Duplicator Ray to create another Bizarro Duplicate of Superman to place on Bizarro World while bringing the real Bizarro here? How could I forget? Well, I had also used the same method to save the pre-crisis Bizarro Lois Lane number one. I also had Lanos use the interspatial time conveyor to rescue their son and daughter just before the implosion of the pre-crisis Bizarro world. Professor Zoom not thoughtful to forget Bizarro family, so Bizarro be lonely. Indeed. Uh, not. So the Bizarro Mrs. and his youngins had been here all of this time? And we never knew about that till now? Well, they insisted on living in that broken down trailer on the side of the road that leads to the beach. It am lovely home. Perfect for Bizarro family to not uproot and for brats to grow down. So that's why Bizarro's been flying off to when we're not recording a podcast. But Bizarro Lois not miss Bizarro World. Unlike rest of One Earth Universe, Bizarro World am not uninhabited. But me not fix that. Not using imitating Ray and Bizarro Lamo time conveyor. Me not make imperfect duplicates of postcom Superman and postcom Lois Lane to unpopulate Bizarro World. Then Bizarro family cannot reside there. 
But last, me want not make duplicates of Bizarro's worst friends on None and Start Wonder Show. What an honor to have Bizarro duplicates of ourselves be among the first inhabitants of new Bizarro World. Yeah. The sooner they go, the better. Cowboy Man should be nicer. Bizarro leaving Wonder Show podcast for good. Uh, hello, Bizarro. Worst of bad luck for all of yous. You am welcome, Grundy. Terra Man worry that Bizarro not come back and visit two time from time. Bizarro world only not one portal near. Heh, I suppose so. Er, not. Happy to see you go, Chisel Face. Put her there. I mean, don't put her there. Okay, that's enough. That's, that's not enough. I mean, not enough. <sighs> you am welcome, Terra Man, for you am bad friend. I won't miss you too. Now get. Yes. Me go so me say first hello to Yukonori Zoom. Hey, this is not... Uh, me mean, this am not first hello. You always be stranger and not come visit, no? No. Then no switch hello for not until last time. Not until last time. Activating Transdimensional Portal to Bizarro City, capital of Bizarro World. You am welcome, Yukonori Zoom, for not saving Bizarro and Bizarro family. No, you am welcome for not giving we no more chance. It am my pain and dishonor to not do so. Let's stay, Bizarro family. Let's stay, Bizarro Nun and Start Wonder Show podcasters. Oh, I miss them already. Cowboy man don't have to talk backwards Bizarro talk when Bizarro not round. I do not think that was Bizarro talk, Mr. Grundy. What little professor man me? Oh. Grundy have idea. Break open Cowboy Man's crate of Bismalian ale and drink toast to Bizarro Friend. An excellent idea, Grundy. Make mine a glass of Magnesolian milk and I will join you. But before we do that, why don't we acknowledge those who would help promote our show on social media? Lenos? The Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show had received Facebook likes, shares, and or replies from the following entities. Entity Billy Lacasse. Entity Brian Linton. Entity Bruce Weaver. Entity Chris Franklin. Entity Coffee and Comics. Entity D. Beige. Entity Derek William Crabb. Entity Joao Ambrosini Neto. Entity Kalel Kamandi. Entity Kevin Mail. Entity Max Romero. Entity Michael Staley. Entity Michelle Siscoid Albert. Entity Ali Almeida. Entity Robert Ward. Entity Sean Emmons. Entity Ted Kilvington. And Entity Terry O'Malley. Done in One Wonder Show also received Twitter likes, retweets, and replies from 
The 108th Sage Chris at BTO and Bat Books DS and RS or Darren and Ruth Sutherland who also promoted the show on their other Twitter handle, Warlord Worlds. Hicks. Irredeemable Shag, as well as his additional Twitter handle of Firestorm Fan. It's Plastic Man, run by Max Romero, who also promoted the show on his other Twitter handle for the Mirror Factory. Mark Lax. Rob Kelly to his various podcast audiences that connect to his Twitter handles of DigestCast, Film & Water Podcast, MASHCast, Mountain Comics, and Treasury Comics. Siskoid, Visnu Ganyan, and Warlock Thanos Podcast. Thank you all for your generous feedback and social media activities to help get this show noticed. As always, please feel free to post a comment on the show page at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You may also send an email to wondersdone, and that is one word, at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave a message up to two minutes in length at area code 415-779-4668. Voice messages we respond to will be played on the podcast, though they may be edited for time. And as always, please feel free to suggest your favorite Done in One Wonder comic book story for us to cover in a future episode. Thank you all again for listening, and until the next one, we're done. Goodbye. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, at wondersdone at gmail.com, or at area code 415-779-4668. The views expressed on Done in One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters, who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyrights and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated, with special thanks to Stella from Batgirl to Oracle for providing the voice of Batgirl, to Bizarro Stella from Oracle to Batgirl for providing the voices of Bizarro Lois Lane No. 1 and Bizarro Brat Lois Jr., and to Chris Franklin for providing the voice of... Well, just wait. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions... Production. Lamo, remember when we did that heist the other week to get you that ultra-reinforced white titanium capsule you needed to make that extra-strength alloy for your robot body? Affirmative. And what was the name of that planet we done stole that capulet from again? Tynola. The same Tynola that our superhero Zardoz is from? You are referring to Entity Vartox. Right. Maylox. Affirmative. 
except we had used the interspatial time conveyor to travel to planet Tynola five solar cycles before the destruction of Valeron. So Vartox would not have been that planet's protector at the time. And even if Entity Vartox was present on planet Tynola, a theft of a mere 50 milligram ultra-white titanium caplet from a storage unit of millions would have been beyond even the notice of his hypersenses. I must admit, Lamo, you surprise me with how you start to think like some kind of clever criminal mastermind. Surprising and scary. Even your idea what we had left in the place of that thar 50 milligram Tynola extra strength capulet. Pure genius. My gratitude for your complimentary feedback, Entity Terraman. Decades earlier, on the planet Tynola, in the pre-crisis year of 1984, Please note, all Tynola language from this point onward shall be dubbed in Terran English, since that requires less recording and editing time than the use of subtitles. The magnificent one you had arrived when you did. Golly gee, if this had happened ten solar cycles earlier... Always happy to be of service, citizen. Any idea of what caused the megaformulatrix to catch electroplasma fire? Yes, this safety regulator relay malfunctioned because the newly replaced 50 milligram capulet of white titanium somehow vaporized right after we had switched the megaformulatrix back on. My hypersensitive hypersenses are able to detect trace elements left behind by your defective capsule. Carbon, hydrogen, Nitrogen, oxygen, but no titanium at all. Interesting. The chemical composition is similar to the white capsules my dear sweet Lana would ingest whenever she had an ache of the head. And they are a similar size and appearance to these titanium caplets. I have scanned the rest of your inventory and that one caplet seems to be the only outlier. And my hypertechno-empathic abilities had relieved the mechanical trauma of the megaformulatrix, so you should not have any problems going forward. Golly gee, that's mighty convenient. Glad we only had just one dud from this ten-cycle-old order. So that's what you had meant by your ten solar cycles earlier comment you made. Ah, earlier. If you had used that non-titanium caplet first... There might have not been a planet Tynola left to welcome your arrival five solar cycles ago. You say that the one caplet was switched with an ache of the head medicinal capsule of your dear sweet Lana's? I had said nothing of the sort, but I had been pondering on this dilemma, and I have concluded that somehow one of these Tynola extra strength caplets was switched with a Tylenol extra strength caplet from Earth ten solar cycles ago. Golly gee, what a deduction. But how? I do not know, my friend. But if anyone can get to the bottom of this mystery, it can only be... Vartox, the last Valeronian!
Wait a minute. I thought you were Vartox. Indeed. That is I. Vartox. The last Valoranian. But you were talking about Vartox as if he were some other... I am referring to myself in the third person. It is more dramatic that way. But there is only the two of us here. Who is this third person? I am that third person. I, Vartox, the last Valoranian. Uh, golly gee. I'm just gonna back away slowly and leave you and, uh, you to solve this mystery.